Good evening. Uh, the Bible reading tonight is um, from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 to 15. So follow along in your own Bible if you like, or it'll be on the screen. So Deuteronomy chapter 26. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land and the Lord your God is giving of the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there, and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labour. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land, land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us as you promised on oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Evening, everyone. Good to be with you again. Uh, my name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, it's time to name and shame. Again, put your hand up if you brought your physical Bible with you. I've been doing asking every time. Oh, come on, this is improvement, progress, 6 p.m. Pat yourselves on the back. The rest of you, do better. Honestly, do better. Uh, please bring your physical Bible to 6 p.m. If you don't have one, we want to give you one. We'd love to give you a free Bible that you could bring with you every week. It'd be really helpful to have it in front of you, especially today as we have a look at chapter 26. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a think uh, about God's Word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time uh, to come together out of the cold, free from distractions, and to focus our hearts and our minds on you and what you are saying to us in your word. Thank you so much for Deuteronomy and for the challenge that it's been and how confronting it's been to us over these uh, past many weeks, causing us to think about our obedience to you and what kind of life you are calling us to. And Lord, we expect your spirit to be at work amongst us tonight. 
refining us and shaping us, teaching us and transforming us to be like your son, Jesus. So please do that work in us. Help us to understand what we are reading tonight uh, so that we would live lives for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, some of you will know that I became a Christian at age 18 and uh, I was converted in an Anglican church. Um, I started going along to the Anglican church because that was where my friends were going. It's my local church. I hope you won't think any less of me because of that. Um, no, I, I know that there's, there's actually quite a lot of people in this church who have come from Anglican churches, have grown up in Anglican churches. So we've had, we have a fondness for Anglicans here. You're, you're on, uh, on the good team. Um, now, for those of you, though, who are unfamiliar with the Anglican church, who've never uh, darkened the doorstep of an Anglican church, what you need to know is that an Anglican church is typically more uh, liturgical than we are as Baptists. And uh, liturgy is just a word that means a prescribed, formal kind of a service, right? It's, the idea of liturgy is that there is a script that you follow when you gather together uh, to help explain the things that you are doing together. Anglicans have more liturgy than we do as Baptists. And uh, because I spent a decade in the Anglican church, the Anglican liturgy that you would hear every week has been sort of hard written into my brain. Uh, and so I wonder if any of you here have spent time in an Anglican church, whether you might be able to help me out with some of the liturgy. Uh, the, what I'm going to read is a few words from the liturgy to do with the communion service when they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's at least one ex-Anglican minister in our congregation, so I figure one person at least should be able to help us out here. Maybe you, you, it's a call and response thing, so I'll play the part of the minister and you play the part of the congregation. That should be easy enough for you to figure out. Uh, if you know it, speak up. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Oh, you guys kicked, yeah, killed it. It's so helpful, right? Uh, for those of you who are wondering what's going on, don't worry too much about it. Um, now, I, I, I recited those words and many, many other liturgical words week after week as an Anglican. And uh, my honest assessment of that was that I found it very easy to say those words mindlessly, unfortunately, it's to my shame. I found it very easy to say words like that with no conviction behind them whatsoever, uh, to just read the words on the screen and to not think about what I was actually saying. Now, to be clear, I do think there's a place for liturgy. Liturgy can be a very helpful thing, uh, but there's also, I think, a danger to it. And the danger is that it teaches you to just go into autopilot mode when it comes to sort of Christian worship. Now, ironically, uh, liturgy was sort of created to do just the opposite of that. <laughs> liturgy was kind of created to put meaning back into Christian worship services. Uh, theologians, leaders in the Christian church had concerns that the people in churches didn't understand what was going on. And so they came up with these scripts, these formal practices of worship to help explain the things that you would do when you gather together. And so I guess I'll leave it up to you to be the judge of whether you think liturgy is helpful for that reason or a hindrance for that reason. Maybe there's just preferences when it comes to this stuff. But my point in sharing all of this with you is to say that I, I found it very easy to drift into autopilot mode uh, rather than actually engaging with what we were doing, rather than worshipping God with my heart and my head switched on, with my whole life, in fact. Uh, Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, once said that religion is the deep default of the human heart. Religion is the deep default of the human heart. 
And by that, he meant that unless we do something to stop ourselves, then each one of us will drift, just this gravitational pull towards empty religion. He's talking about just going through the religious motions, practicing your religious ceremonies and rituals, but actually not engaging with them, having no spiritual value behind them. That's what he means when he says religion is the deep default of the human heart. By default, we hollow out our practice as Christians to be just an empty ritual. And I wonder if you know what Martin Luther is talking about when he says that. I wonder if you've had the experience, maybe when you come to church and suddenly you kind of, you, you wake up almost mid-song and you realise that the words have been coming out of your mouth this whole time, but your brain has been elsewhere the whole time, thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow at work, for instance. I wonder if you've had that experience. I wonder whether perhaps you've ever noticed yourself just falling into this empty religion trap when it comes to, say, your attitude towards, towards serving, uh, serving at church, serving other people. That it's, it's something that you do because there's an expectation that you do it. It's not an overflow of your heart. It's just a, a religious thing that fills your time in your week. You ever find yourself in that kind of scenario? I wonder if you ever find yourself coming to church with no real desire to come. You just do it because it's Sunday night and that's what the clock says you're to do. And then when you get here, you're watching the clock to see it kind of finish as quickly as possible so you can get back to doing what you really want to do. This can just become an empty religious practice. I wonder if you've had any of those experiences. It, it is scarily easy to just go through the religious motions. And the problem with that is obvious, I hope. The problem is that God does not want that from us. God is not interested in just our religiosity, is he? What God is interested in from us is relationship. God wants our affection, our attention, our adoration, our devotion. God wants our love. He wants us to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Well, in the passage that we're looking at today, Deuteronomy 26, which is kind of the end of this big, large middle section we've done in Deuteronomy from chapter 12 to 26, which is all the, the laws that Moses explains to Israel. In, in this section, God is going to teach his people that he does not want mere religion from them. That's not what God's interested in. He doesn't want mere religion. And in this section, we're going to see God actually explaining to his people what he really does want from them. And the way he's going to do that is by giving them liturgy liturgy, which is supposed to accompany their religious practices, to explain it, to teach them what this is all really about. And I trust that this will be a helpful reminder for us too, because just like Israel, we are people for whom religion is our deep default. And so we must do something to stop ourselves from going in that direction. So what is it that God actually wants from us? If it's not just the empty religion, what does he want? Well, the first thing that we're going to see in this passage is that God wants our joyful thanks for his grace. That's what God's looking for from us. Our joyful thanks for his grace. Now, have a look there at verse uh, 1 of chapter 26. It, it begins by kind of looking forward to a time when Israel have entered the promised land. And uh, it, the expectation is that they're already kind of practicing some of the festivals that have been described earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, in particular, verses 1 to 11 are talking about a time when Israel are to bring their first fruits as an offering. And that was something they were supposed to do during the festival of weeks. Maybe you read about that a few weeks ago in Bible study. 
this bringing of the first fruits, if you're curious what that means, it's literally as the name suggests. It's the first part of their fruit. It was an agricultural society. They were largely farmers in Israel. And so the first part of their crops, the first animals that were born, would be set aside as an offering to God, a yearly kind of basis. And that's a significant thing for God to ask of his people, to give him the first fruits. Because to give God the first of your crop is, is an act of trust, isn't it? When the harvest finally comes and all that you bring in in that first load, it's not for you, it's for God. You've got to trust at that point that God is going to bring the rest of the harvest, that he is going to give you what you need. And that would have been the hardest part, wouldn't it, of the harvest to kind of let go and offer to God? Because all winter long, you've been watching your fields, waiting for the crops to come. Your supplies in your storehouse have been dwindling and finally the food's arrived, but we've got to wait a little bit longer. It's showing us, God asking for our first fruits, is showing us that God does not want our scraps. He doesn't want our leftovers. He wants our best in worship. And did you notice the emphasis in this chapter, particularly at the beginning here? The emphasis is on how gracious God has been to his people already. Three times there in the first three verses, uh, it's described as the land the Lord your God is giving you. This land that they're in, this, this bountiful harvest that they've, come, they've received, it's as a gift from God. You see, what God is trying to do here is just to get them to start thinking about their religious practices, this first fruits they're supposed to offer, and tying it, anchoring it to his grace that he has shown them. That's why they're doing this thing, because he's shown them grace. And so Moses here begins to describe this liturgy which when the worshipper comes to give their first fruits, they're supposed to speak this, this kind of speech, to God. And the speech is actually all about their story. It's the story of Israel, the story of who they are and where they come from. And, and that you might think that's a strange thing for God to require his people to do, to tell him the story of where they come from. God already knows that story because he's the one who authored it, isn't he? He's the one who's led them to this point. So why do they need to tell God their story about who they are and where they come from? It's not for God's benefit, right? No, it's for their benefit. Because it's true, isn't it, that the story that you tell about yourself, about who you are and where you come from, it has a profound impact on the direction of your life. What you believe about who you are will determine the kind of person that you are. That's been true for all of history. Many people have known it for good or bad reasons. Back in uh, just after the end of World War II in Romania, uh, the Communist Party seized power. They rigged the election, rose to power, and they immediately began this process of trying to consolidate their control over the, over the country. And they had a number of ways of doing that. They, they silenced the academics who were you know, opposed to communism. Uh, they set up a secret police to monitor the people to make sure that they knew whether there was going to be any opposition coming to them. One of the most significant ways that they controlled the population of Romania, though, was to rewrite the history books of Romania. Because they realised that to control this people, they needed to control their imagination. They needed to have this communist state that they have set up be the kind of the natural outcome of Romania's history, this utopic progression towards what they had now that saw communists as the good guys, not the bad guys. And so they literally rewrote the history books because they knew that if they controlled the story, if they controlled the narrative, then they would control the people. Now, the question is, what is the story 
that God wants us to believe about ourselves and about where we come from? What is the story in this liturgy? Well, let's have a look at it. Verse 5. I think you can break up this, this story here into kind of four main stages, four steps, if you like, in their story. And it begins with their origins as a, as a nation. Have a look there from verse 5. Their origins. It says that my father was a wandering Aramean. That's the first thing they're supposed to um, confess, which is a, a, a unique kind of phrase. It's the only place in the Bible that that language gets used. And it's not immediately obvious who that's talking about. It seems to be referring to the, the forefathers of Israel, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. All three of them were nomadic people at various points in their lives. They all had some connection to the land of Aram, so they could all be called a wandering Aramean. It's not immediately obvious. But the point of this, I think, in, in confessing that my origin as a nation came from a nomadic wanderer, the point of that is to help Israel to remember that they at one point were nothing impressive whatsoever. They were nobodies, from nowhere impressive, nothing to boast about, no claim on God's inheritance. They were just wandering Arameans, nothing special. That was their origin. The next part of the story that they were to tell was about this predicament that they would find themselves in. Verse 6, eventually they, they come to be suffering and subjecting to, subjected to hard labour in Egypt. This is their slavery that they find themselves in in uh, the book of Exodus. There is no hope for them in this predicament. It's to, trying to get them to uh, imagine with kind of evocative language being trapped, being in a position where they couldn't get themselves out. That was their predicament. But what comes next in their story? It's God's mercy. That's the next stage of this story. Verses 7 and 8, they cry out to God. God hears them. God rescues them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They didn't earn this salvation. There was, there was nothing that they could do to, to merit it, no claim that they would get on God coming and rescuing them, but he did it anyway. God showed them mercy. That was the, the third step. And then finally in their story, they're to remember their current blessing, how good God has been to them. The final part there, verse 9 and 10, reminds them that God is the one who has brought them into this abundant land, this land flowing with milk and honey. That's why they're standing there today offering those first fruits. Their origin, their predicament, God's mercy and his blessing to them. That's their story. And it's, it's obviously, if you know the history of Israel, it's a very abridged version of their story. Uh, it leaves out a lot of the, the less than flattering parts where Israel sin and fail to trust God. But in broad brushstrokes, I think that's accurate to say that that is the story of the nation of Israel. And you can see that it's a good news story, isn't it? It's, it is, in fact, a gospel story. It's good news for them. And I wonder if you noticed as we were kind of going through it, how similar that story is to our story as Christians. I think you could tell our story of who we are and where we come from in exactly those four categories as well. What is our origin as the people of God? Well, we weren't wandering Arameans, but we sure were nobodies from nowhere. None of us was anything special before God saved us, were we? The book of Ephesians would describe that we at one point were lost we were without hope and without God in the world. We had no claim on any of this blessing that God has now given to us. We come from nothing. That's, that's our origin. What's our predicament? Well, let's actually go through with the book of Ephesians. It'll spell out some of this for us. What situation did we find ourselves in? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Verse 3, we were by nature objects deserving of wrath. We weren't in slavery in Egypt. We were in slavery to sin, far more hopeless situation. 
That was our predicament. No claim, no hope for God to do anything to bless us. But stage three, God showed us mercy, didn't he? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then finally, where do we find ourselves now? We are abundantly blessed, aren't we? Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's our story, our origin, our predicament, God's mercy and our blessing. That's who we are. That's where we come from. And and it should be obvious to you. It's self-evident, I think, what that story and what Israel's story, as they recounted it and as they reflected on it, what it was supposed to produce in them. If you believe that you are a nobody from nowhere, that you were dead in your sin and transgression with no hope, but the Lord of heaven and earth rescued you because of nothing you had done and he has showered his blessings on you, what ought that to produce in you? Thanksgiving, right? Joyful thanksgiving for God's grace, celebration of God's mercy towards, his, towards us and undeserving people. In fact, back in Deuteronomy 26, Israel are told that that's what that's supposed to produce when they, they tell this story again. Verse 11, after they tell this liturgy, they are to rejoice in all the good things God's given them. That's why God wants uh, them to recite this liturgy, so that they would look to their past so that they will joyfully give thanks now for God's grace to them. It's it's quite a simple kind of a formula, isn't it? The trouble was that God has been warning Israel, and you may have noticed this, all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, that they are in danger of forgetting that story. We've seen time and time again, God issue warnings. I'll give you one example, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and their children after them. You get the sense as you read Deuteronomy that it's, it seems inevitable that Israel are going to forget who they are, forget where they came from. And sure enough, as you keep reading the Bible, that's exactly what happens. When they enter the promised land, they forget their gospel story. And so their worship then of God just becomes empty religion. It's no longer for Israel a joyous celebration of the grace that God has given them. What it becomes is just an empty box-ticking exercise. And that's, I reckon that's a danger for us too as Christians, isn't it? Isn't it the times in your life when you give the least thought to God's grace to you in Jesus, where it doesn't even cross your mind. Isn't it those points in your life when you feel the most spiritually dry and empty? Those times when we just find ourselves going through the motions of church, ticking the boxes. Often the reason is because we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten the grace God has shown us, that we were his enemies, but now we are forgiven sons and daughters of God. That our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That, that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms. That he's given us an eternal inheritance. We take our eyes off that and we wonder why we're feeling so dry and so, thank, so thankless. But the opposite's true as well, isn't it? That, that when we remember the gospel story, 
when it, when it hits us again and we, we realize what God has done for us in Christ, that's the point where, where thankfulness is just drawn out of us naturally, isn't it? And joy for our salvation. And what used to feel like a duty at that point feels like a delight. So I think the takeaway take for us from this, friends, is that we need to savour every opportunity that we get to reflect on and to be reminded of our gospel story, a story of who we are and where we come from. You know, as a Christian, you never actually move on from the gospel. You know that? Your Christian life begins with that story of the gospel. That's what makes you a Christian when you understand and trust Jesus' grace towards you. But then that gospel message is the foundation for everything in your Christian life. It is the engine that drives you forward in loving obedience towards God. And so in your, in your individual kind of relationship with God, do not move on from the gospel. Reflect on it daily at every opportunity you get in your individual life. But also I think this applies to us in our corporate life together as a church. We have to make sure that the gospel is front and centre always in everything that we do. When we come together as a church in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, the sermons that get preached, when we practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's the gospel that we need to focus on. And so I want to say, if you've been coming to WBC for a while and you feel like we're harping on about this Jesus dying on the cross thing an awful lot, we're never going to apologise for that. That is our only hope in life and death. And so we must focus on it at every opportunity. We must focus on the gospel because if we take our eyes off that story, if we forget that story, then we just drift into empty religion. And God wants more than that from us. He wants our joyful thanks for his grace. That's the first thing that this passage shows us. The second thing that this passage teaches us is that God wants our wholehearted obedience too. He wants our wholehearted obedience. And so from verse 12 to 15, you get another liturgy that God gives to his people. And this time it's, it's not to do with that first fruits offering, it's to do with another tithe that they were to bring every three years. You can read about that tithe back in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy if you're interested. And the liturgy that they are to recite here when they do this tithing, it's not a story for them to sort of look back on actually, it's more like a confession that they are to, to make. And actually, what you see is that they are supposed to speak this confession to God, verse 13. They're to direct it to the Lord. And there are nine things listed here that they are to affirm. Some things that they've done and some things that they are not to have done. So take a look. Let's have a look at some of these affirmations they're supposed to make. Verse 14, uh, they're supposed to confess when they they do this tithe that they've handled it properly. Uh, So it says... You're to say, I have not eaten of any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. The idea behind that kind of confession is that you are supposed to be able to say that you kept this offering, this tithe, ritually clean. You didn't associate it at all with death in any way, because in Israelite culture, that would make this offering unclean. And again, this is a reminder, isn't it, to us that God does not want our dregs in worship. He wants our best. And and so this liturgy here for this second festival, it has some very particular acts of obedience in mind, but it also has a very broad view of obedience that Israel were to have. So have a look at some of these other affirmations here. The end of verse 13, the worshipper is supposed to to say to God, I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. 
the end of verse 14 there to say, I have obeyed the Lord my God. I've done everything you commanded me. Those are very big things to claim, aren't they? To say that you've done everything that God has commanded you. I mean, have you been paying attention through the book of Deuteronomy? There's a lot that God commands of them, isn't there? How could anybody say this? How could anybody actually think that they have kept all the commandments that God requires of them? I mean, can you imagine if you had to say that? Put yourself in these shoes. But yet imagine that every time you came to church, you had to stand up individually before us and before God and confess, I've done everything that God commanded of me this week. I think church attendance would plummet pretty quickly if we require that, wouldn't it? Why would God insist that Israel confess this and confirm that they've obeyed him in the broadest possible terms? It's a head scratcher, but surely the answer is that God is trying to rule out the possibility that somebody could just come and offer this tithe every three years and assume that they've done everything that God expected of them. Surely God is trying to rule out the possibility of people ignoring him for most of their lives and just going through the religious motions. Surely God is demonstrating with this requirement, this liturgy, that he wants their wholehearted obedience all of the time. And not just people who pay him lip service. The kind of person who ticks Christian on the census, who comes to church at Christmas and Easter and then has no interest in obeying God and his direction in their life any other day of the year. God, God does not want those kinds of worship, does he? One of my favourite movies is The Godfather. I'm going to spoil it for you. It's a 50-year-old movie. If you haven't seen it, too bad. Uh, the climax of the movie, there's this scene where Michael Corleone is played by Al Pacino. He's the, the mafia don. He's becoming the godfather. Um, he is at a church for the christening of his little niece, his sister's daughter. And in the, the Catholic church, when the baby is being christened, the priest asks the godparent some questions that they then have to affirm. And as the camera watches Michael Corleone be asked these questions by the priest, it cuts away at various points in the interrogation. The priest asks Michael Corleone, do you renounce Satan? Michael Corleone very, very solemnly says, I renounce him. The camera cuts away to one of Michael's henchmen who has been ordered to murder his mafia rivals, takes out his shotgun, kills three men in an ele elevator cuts back to Michael Corleone. Do you renounce Satan's works? I renounce them, says Michael Corleone. Cut again to yet another of his henchmen murdering yet another of his opponents. Back to Michael. Do you renounce Satan's schemes? I renounce them, says Michael. Cut again to another murder. It's a, a fabulous scene, but it is shocking. It, it's heart-wrenching, this ugly hypocrisy of this man that he would go through this religious practice and make such a claim as that and yet have a life that is so out of step with his profession. It's no surprise, is it? If we can see the ugliness of that, it's no surprise that God hates religious lip service too, right? That shouldn't surprise us. Later in the Bible, when Israel have entered the land, and they've turned away from God. They're worshipping idols. They're oppressing the poor. They're not honouring him whatsoever. But they are still doing the festivals. They're still bringing the worship to the temple. God at one point speaks to his people and he says, stop it. He says, I find what you are doing detestable. It's the strongest possible condemnation from God. 
He says, I will not listen to your prayers. I will not accept your burnt offerings. They are so detestable. Do you know, this ought to unsettle us, I think. The fact that God is, is not pleased when there is a, a discrepancy between our a public profession of faith, our engagement in the, the corporate kind of acts of worship, and then a life that is out of step with his standards. That ought to unsettle us. We ought to feel uncomfortable, I think, when we recognise in ourselves places where our walk does not match our talk. When you come to church and you serve and you give time and then you go home and you are bitter and you will not forgive your spouse... That ought to make you uncomfortable because God hates that. When you give your money to gospel causes, good thing, but then you still covet the things of the world, you ought to feel uncomfortable in that because God hates religious lip service. When you, when you come to church and you sing God's praises, but then behind closed doors, you are still cherishing evil, God hates that. And there's this disconnect between our outward public worship and our inner private devotion to God. It does not please him. And we have to feel unsettled by that. Because we cannot, friends, we cannot get comfortable with living a double life. God wants our wholehearted obedience all of the time. And that's a problem for us, isn't it? You know it and I know it. C.S. Lewis described us as half-hearted creatures, <laughs> How can a half-hearted creature be wholeheartedly devoted to God? None of us could, can None of us could stand before God and make this profession, actually recite this liturgy with integrity, claim that we've fully obeyed him. None of us could do that. If you are anything like me, then I am sure you are all too aware of the discrepancy between the life that you live and the life you should live. So where does that leave us? If this is what God wants of his people, does that mean that he's not interested in us? That, that we should not bother coming to God in worship? That we are excluded on the basis of our less than perfect obedience to him? Is that where this leaves us? Thankfully, no. I want to, at this point, friends, I want to remind you of your story. This is the point for us to look back to our story as Christians. Remember, friends, that part of the grace that God showed to you in Jesus is that he sent Jesus to perfectly keep this covenant. As, as verse 18 in this passage requires someone who is going to keep this covenant, that was your saviour, Jesus, who kept this covenant that you could not. He was the one who perfectly obeyed all of God's commandments. He's the one who was wholehearted in his devotion to his father. He's the one for whom there was no gap between the life he should live and the life that he lived. And so now for us, for us who trust in him, his perfection and his righteousness is ours. God now looks at us as if we have done everything he commanded us. And so, friends, we don't make peace with our failings. We're not content with them. No, we, we do push on in our devotion to God. We pursue wholehearted obedience to God, but we do it not out of a kind of a religious mindset. Not, we don't do it because, well, this is what God wants me to do. I obey his commands and if I obey them, then he will accept me. No, not the religious mindset. We do it with a gospel mindset, 
a gospel mindset that says, I am accepted by God and therefore I obey. My father loves me and so I will love him. And there is a world of difference between those two motivations, the religious motivation and the gospel motivation. I hope you know the difference. Friends, this passage ought to make us really thankful for Christ's perfect obedience on our behalf. And at the same time, it ought to make us really dissatisfied with our own less than perfect obedience. And so I want to call you today, friends, with the help of God's spirit to strive to please the Lord. Push on towards wholehearted obedience to him because God does not want our empty religion. He wants relationship with us. He wants our affection, our attention, our devotion. He wants our love. He wants us to love him with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. With God's help, let's do that. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are really aware of our own failings. We know what you want from us and we know that we fall so far short. And so we thank you, Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus, the perfect one, the obedient one, the one who was wholeheartedly devoted to you. We thank you that he fulfilled the demands of this covenant on our behalf. Thank you that you now look at us as if we have done this. What a gift of grace. May we never forget it. Amen.